Hey, white boy, what you waiting for? That hole ain't gonna dig itself. Come on, boy, get your dick skin on that thing. Dig. You can get all day. Dig, dig. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like, hell. I hate it already, and it's only been a week. Some goddamn week, Grandma. The hardest thing I think I've ever done is go on point three times this week. I don't even know what I'm doing. A gook could be standing three feet in front of me, and I wouldn't know it. I'm so tired. We get up at 5 a.m., hump all day, camp around 4 or 5, dig a foxhole, eat, then put out an all-night ambush or a three-man listening post in the jungle. It's scary because nobody tells me how to do anything because I'm new. Nobody cares about the new guys. They don't even want to know your name. The unwritten rule is a new guy's life isn't worth as much because he hasn't put his time in yet. And they say if you're going to get killed in the Nam, it's better to get it in the first few weeks. The logic being, you don't suffer that much. If you're lucky, you get to stay in the perimeter at night. And then you pull a three-hour guard shift. So maybe you sleep three, four hours a night, but you don't really sleep. I don't think I can keep this up for a year, Grandma. I think I've made a big mistake coming here. You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. The following podcast may contain adult language and discussions of an adult nature. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. You have been warned. Now... Take it away, Dr. Roush. They must be destroyed on sight! They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 202. I'm your host, Lee. Feeling good's good enough, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel, the meanest motherfucker in the Valley Harper. How you doing, sir? I am, uh, I don't have, I don't have COVID-19 yet, which oh. is, uh, you know, a positive. But uh, people are in my state capital uh, trying to um, uh, demand uh, terrible things from our governor. Calls. Uh, I, I do live in Michigan, so uh, things. Uh, life is good. Life is perfect. Everything is fine. Yeah, if you go to a peaceful protest carrying your sidearm, you, you're you're a fucking idiot. Uh, <laughs> these are these are you know armed people showing up in the uh, Michigan governor's uh, office, uh, you know, ba- banging on the door, demanding that uh, they be able to uh, risk their lives by uh, in the middle of a global pandemic. That's uh, yep. That's, Really great behavior. And ultimately, these are not people who want to, like, these are not, like, poor people who need a paycheck to survive. These, these are people that have, you know, $3,000 rifles. These are people who are well off enough to, like, what they want to do is force all their employees to go uh, back to work. Yeah. yeah. D- don't you guys have any wars you're fighting right now you could draft all these motherfuckers <laughs> to? Like... <laughs> Well, I think we might get into that just a little bit here uh, given our film discussion, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but so, you know, continuing on with what we were sort of talking about 
touching upon in um, Southern Comfort uh, last episode, we're going to be looking at Platoon from 1986, directed by Oliver Stone this time out. And we were going to do Casualties of War as well, but YouTube wouldn't let me uh, rent Casualties of War. So I said, fuck you, YouTube, because they wanted me to pay $16 for an HD version. And I'm not doing that. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I actually was uh, thinking, I mean, you know, um, my, my father served in Vietnam. These are the two movies, Platoon and Casualties of War, are the two that I always kind of associate with him and his, like, those. Uh, I don't even know that they were, like, his favorite movies. I don't know that he watched them all that often, but I do remember him, like, like there was a particular moment in my life in which he would he was watching these um, in the late 80s when they were new, when we had HBO at that time, I think. That was kind of what I was thinking, like kind of watching the kind of getting the Vietnam War stuff. I was like, hey, let's let's do these two movies. It'll give me the chance to kind of rewatch them and kind of filter it through that lens a little bit. And uh, I did watch both of them and uh, they are very, very similar movies. So I feel like we can just kind of do the one and not have to worry about Casualties of War, which is uh, worth watching. I think in some ways it's a better movie. I've seen Casualties of War, but uh, actually Platoon, this was my first time watch for it. Oh, so. nice. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, uh, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of where you come down on it then. So yeah, I'm we. I'm surprised this is our first Oliver Stone movie. We've done two hundred two episodes, and we have not done anything by Oliver Stone. Because yeah, I kind of went through an Oliver Stone period for a while. I mean, I watched this during that kind of run, so I actually have quite a bit to say about sort of uh, how this fits into Stone's career um, a bit. So yeah, you know, I don't I don't think I ever been through like an Oliver Stone period. He's not a director I've like gone to and like started digging deep into his stuff. I, I mean, I've seen a lot of his movies, but he, he's not, he's never been like a, a blip on my radar as like a movie watcher to mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, dig deeper into his stuff. I mean, I own the doors. That's about it. That's yeah. <laughs> Well, I saw JFK like just at that moment when like JFK, like kind of like blew my fucking mind, you know? Yeah. And uh, really set kind of, there's a few period of like JFK natural born killers and Nixon that I think are really like kind of when he was, firing at all cylinders and doing stuff that like nobody else was doing and uh yeah we can we can kind of get into that because uh, you know he's, he's obviously a highly political filmmaker um, yeah. that's sort, of, sort of interesting because he actually is kind of saying things that like almost no one else in american cinema is, is saying you know he's sort of like directly critical criticizing the military industrial complex as he does in, in some of those later films but um he does also go into a uh, cranky land and um he does <laughs> Um, some of the, uh, he gets kind of pigeonholed as like this kind of, like the only thing he does is this kind of weird conspiracy theorist stuff. And I think that was his reputation for a while. Um, which is both earned mm-hmm. <laughs> by, by, uh, uh, Stone himself, but, uh, also, uh, in some ways uh, overstated. Um, so anyway, it'll be interesting to kind of talk about this film, um, in that way. Yeah. So we've got nothing else. We've got no, uh, we got no comments other than, um, on Facebook, Darren Wilson said, "You're slotted for Land of the Dead." And that's about it. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess I guess uh, DM me, Darren, and uh, we'll come on and we'll talk about Land of the Dead sometime. Yeah, and we got nothing we've watched recently that we feel like talking about. We both had rough weeks. I I have a, a factory reset ahead of me on my computer that I'm just not looking forward to. And yeah, this is fuck this th- fucking week. It's, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> the one, the one bright spot is as I did get to, uh, I rewatched the first four episodes of the Mandalorian, uh, this yeah. afternoon with my wife. And that was like, Oh yes, this is remember back when like, this was the thing that we were all really excited about. And it is quite good. It is a mm-hmm. good show. It is very enjoyable. And it took my mind off of the rest of the world for a few hours. And that was... Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play some music, some podcast promos, and we'll be back with Platoon. Ah! 
How about throwing a little beach party for yourself and letting these people to get to know you oh so better? Hey kids, it's me, your good friend Alistair, here to tell you about a wonderful movie podcast called Get Soft with Dr. Snuggles. What happens is, every two weeks, the love of my life, Siobhan and I, are joined by a cast of friends, family, internet weirdos, and special guests to guide you through the wild and woolly world of erotic thrillers and softcore films. Everything from alien abduction, intimate secrets, to Zarita, Passions Avenger, and all points in between. Check it out now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's that horrid man talking about? Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho-Semanticast. Let us face, without panic, the reality of our time. The fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. The neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Well, come on, all of you big strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. We we're all gonna die. Now come on, Wall Street, don't be slow. I man, this is war a go-go. There's plenty good money to be made. Supply in the army with the tools of the trade. Just over crazy if they drop the bomb. We're dropping on the Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, ain't no time to wonder why. We'll be all gonna die. Now come on, generals, let's move fast. Your big chance is here at last. Now you can go out and get those reds, cause the only good commie is one that's dead. And you know that peace can only be one when you're blown while the kingdom comes. Sing it! One, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Louder! It's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the curly gates. Well, I ain't no time to wonder why. Now come on, mothers, about the land. Pack your boys off to Vietnam. Come on, fathers, don't hesitate. The second son's off before it's too late. Be the first one to buy your block. Two, three, what are we 
Platoon from 1986. In 1967, Oliver Stone was a combat infantryman in Vietnam. During his tour, he received a bronze star for gallantry. Ten years later, in Hollywood, he was picking up an Oscar for the screenplay of Midnight Express. Now he has another story to tell, a movie that grew out of his own experience. Stone has come a long way from Vietnam, but he has not left it behind. The first real casualty of war is innocence. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon. Directed and written by Oliver Stone, uh, starring Charlie Sheen as Private Chris Taylor. Tom Berenger as Staff Sergeant Bob Barnes, William Defoe as Sergeant Elias Gordon, Keith David as King, Forrest Whitaker as Big Harold, Francesco Quinn as Ra, Kevin Dillon as Bunny, John C. McGinley as Sergeant Red O'Neill, Corey Glover as Francis, Johnny Depp as Lerner, and Tony Todd as Sergeant Warren, and there's another just like litany of amazing acting acting talent in this like you know amazing future big stars this was the forest whitaker's first movie yeah yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of that i mean you know like when johnny depp is in it and he's a little like he's in i think three scenes or something it's 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 kind of remarkable yeah yeah he's just like like, i saw him and i was that guy looks a lot like johnny depp but johnny depp was in this and then i look it up it's like oh no that was totally johnny depp yeah 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 just a shit ton of talent in this It's, it's kind of amazing to see all the, all the people who just went on to have like super big fucking careers out of this. But yep. uh, yeah, uh, we have a synopsis here from someone called uh, Julesh5742, or J- maybe it's just Jay Welch. I don't know. It's all one big me- mashup. Chris Taylor leaves his university studies to enlist in combat duty in Vietnam in 1967. Once he's on the ground in the middle of the battle, his idealism fades. Infighting in his unit be- between Staff Sergeant Barnes, who believes nearby villagers are harboring Viet Cong soldiers, and Sergeant Elias, who has a more sympathetic view of the locals, ends up pitting the soldiers against each other as well as against the enemy. And yeah, that's kind of the skeleton of the of of the you know the heart of the plot. But there's a lot of shit going on in this film. Yeah. <laughs> So this was not filmed in Vietnam. It was filmed uh, in the island of uh, Luzon in the Philippines. Yep. One other notable thing before we sort of get into this won four Oscars that year for this movie. And uh, this was the first in Oliver Stone's sort of Vietnam trilogy. It was like this born on the 4th of July. And what's the other one? Um, Heaven and Earth. Heaven and Earth. Yeah. 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 That's the one where he actually tries to take the Vietnamese perspective and kind of like show the other side of the conflict. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting film in that in that sense, but it doesn't get nearly the uh, attention that that uh, Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July yet, um, partly for that reason. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and yeah. This is basically a script that he had floating around for a long time since like the seventies, and this is all based on his experiences in Vietnam when he served. And I guess it was supposed to be like a originally it was supposed to be like a response to uh, John Wayne's The Green Berets. 
Yeah, no, it was it was it's it's kind of like the 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 idea originally was this sort of like we'll tell the story of like what it really was like over there and don't do the the, the hagiography and I think it still ends up being that, but uh, the fact that it ends up being made you know two decades later kind of affects uh, sort of the 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 kind of the cultural attitude towards the war and sort of the the you know it, it's less a response to Green Berets than it is kind of something uh, something very different. He he was he did serve in Vietnam. Um, I actually read a biography of uh, Oliver Stone uh, mm-hmm. back during that period when I was kind of getting getting deep into him. And I mean, he describes the experience of like, you know, like I, I wrote this screenplay. I wrote kind of the thing that eventually became Platoon I, like, right after I came back. Um, and I think he actually went to film school. Yeah, he went to film school after he was trying to shop this around as a script. And then eventually goes to film school just so he can uh, become a director and make it himself. Yeah. So this was this was his like big passion project. He did he had done some um, a little bit of directing before this, yep. and he had done quite a bit of writing, some script editor work, and you know that kind of stuff. He'd been bouncing around Hollywood for you know uh, 15, 20 years at this point. I'm um, not quite twenty years, but he had been kind of trying to trying to break in, and uh, this was kind of the big thing that kind of became what an Oliver Stone movie is. Even though he had made some some quite good stuff before this, he made a couple like schlocky horror movies early on just. To yeah. get his foot in the door, yeah, yeah, no, he so. did. Um, and uh, you know, uh, he wrote uh, Midnight Express, and then he ends up kind of going into mm-hmm. uh, he did talk radio, which is an interesting one. Um, so yeah, uh, but but it is, it is very much about his experience. I mean, he was a rich kid who decided to you know go and fight in the war on sort of ethical grounds that it shouldn't just be the poor kids going on and uh, really becoming kind of disheartened by what he found there and kind of like realizing just like, Oh man, this not only does this suck in the ways that war sucks, but what the fuck are we doing here? His personal politics as is a lot of people that age in that time period, their personal politics became entwined with their feelings about the war. And I think that that Mm -hmm. comes across very well um, in the film. And I think it is interesting that it was like impossible to get made until two decades, two decades later when, uh, you know, Hollywood finally decided like, maybe we should like make some movies about how bad (laughs) (laughs) you know know, there was this like kind of cultural reckoning around that time you know when when Mm -hmm. i first started kind of becoming aware of like politics and stuff like in the late 80s and early 90s in which you know we're actually going like oh yeah that that thing where we killed like a whole bunch we basically genocided cambodia yeah that that was bad that was actually bad it turns out the hippies were right but um they're they've been crushed into gorillas now we're all uh, reagan uh, reaganites now so um yeah that's just (laughs) just the way things go Um, because like in the like in the 70s when like there was a lot of movies based around vietnam you know based around the war but a lot of them were just cheap exploitation films and they were more about you know there there's definitely some thoughtful stuff here and there in some of those but a lot of them were just you know about maybe the effects on the soldiers once they come home it, it wasn't so much about oh we're committing atrocities in vietnam right now you know right. that kind of thing well and a lot of one of the fort july is very much about this sorry we're not even talking about the film we're just kind of <laughs> setting the stage here but born on the fort july is very much a film about there's this real guy i forget his name but he's played by tom cruise in the film yeah and um, he was literally born on the 4th of July, and he was this kind of rah-rah, right-wing American patriot, went to war because he thought he was, you know, this was my duty to my country, and this is, you know, this is going to be our glorious war. It's going to be World War II, but it's going to be, you know, us going, kicking ass and taking names and, you know, defeating the commies. And then he gets uh, paralyzed, and he comes back, and this is all about that experience. And there was a ton of media around this time that was about that. Um 
but you know, not again, as you say, not focused on um, the actual experience of like what actually happens in in these wars and what actually you know the experience of being on the ground is. And I think that what's interesting about the film is that it is, in a lot of ways, uh, it does just reflect like this was this was this was an experience. I mean, it is semi autobiographical from some mm-hmm. perspective, and so it is uh, this sort of idea that uh, he's exploring you know he's just kind of showing what it was what it was actually like to be there and it sucked and it was hot and there are insects all over the place and you know what you're doing you don't get any sleep and uh <laughs> you know it's uh, it's just a thing so um actually I'm, I'm really interested since this is your first watch um what do you think of the film i don't want to say i was surprised by how sophisticated it was compared to like all the other sort of vietnam films i've seen but mm-hmm. i mean it was super sophisticated it, it's a film that actually cares about its characters a great deal you know it's, it's like even even the bad ones it pays attention to them and the situation they're in and what they think about the situation they're in and how they relate to each other and how you know the sort of duality of people where you can become a totally different person under the you know certain circumstances and i mean the circumstances in this film like right off the bat you're supposed to be, you know, in Charlie Sheen's uh, shoes, basically. And he gets out of the uh, troop carrier and he's immediately thrown into the jungle. And, and it's like a, it's only like a scene later. He, he's like almost dead from dehydration. Like he, he can barely walk. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he falls to the ground. And then the next thing that happens is fucking he's got ants crawling all over him. And it's like Jesus Christ! It's like, like oh no, these are the red ants. The red ants are okay. It's the black ones that, that they'll get you. It's like oh man, that's you know, this uh, is bleak. This is bleak. But what I really liked, like just the opening, I was so that they're being told, okay, you newbies, you go that way, follow whoever to you know get your orders and shit. And they pass a group of vets who are obviously like leaving, like they're finished a tour. And the vets are just like, some of them are looking at him like, oh, look at the newbies, new meat going into the jungle. You're going to love Vietnam, boy. And then there's a couple of them who are just like so battle scarred and just destroyed. They just like look at him with dead eyes like, you poor fuckers. You're, yeah. You don't even know what you're going to. It's like, it's, oh, it's almost like two fucking separate species of creatures passing by each other. It, it's such so night and day. Uh, the, the sort of newbies who come in and and the and the people are going out and we touched upon that in Southern Comfort too what they would do where they would you know they'd send people in for a tour and they'd you know basically get their dick wet in Vietnam and if they survived they'd leave and now they replace them with newbies who had no idea what the fuck they were doing and you know right which is a recurring problem even in um uh, you know even in current conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sorry, uh, shouldn't say you know wars of a U.S. imperial aggression. Yeah, I mean, um, there's this great documentary Restrepo, um, which mm-hmm. uh, is I don't know. Have you seen the documentary? Yeah, we talked about this last week. I, I told you I did. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sometimes I forget what we've talked about, and what we haven't. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a film that uh, is about you know the experience of people fighting in the, on this like very dangerous uh, region in uh, Afghanistan in the early days of the of the Afghani war. They would literally like they just rotate people in on these like nine month or ten month or twelve month uh, rotations, and the second that you're actually sort of like get your bearings and you're able to actually talk to people and you sort of understand the dynamic. Of the, of the people in this particular valley and who's trustworthy and who's not and who you can kind of work with. And the minute you can actually try to do something, suddenly you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> and they just keep doing that over and over again, um, which is not a good way to do the thing that they claim they're trying to do. And I almost think makes you think they're not actually trying to do that thing. Um, uh, but yeah, no. But yeah, no. And so you get this 
this weird culture, they immediately sort of show you the sort of division in the platoon. So you, you've got these like crazy battle hardened guys like the Barnes of the world, you know, who are the, like the officers and stuff who are in it because they want to be there because they're fucking killers and they're monsters and this is what they kind of live for. And they got no regard for the newbies. The newbies are just meat to stack up in front of bullets, basically, is what they are to them. Right. And if some of them survive, there's also a draft war. This is this. These are these mm-hmm. are you know slave soldiers, effectively. Yeah. Um, and uh, that uh, that's something that was obvious to people at the time. You know, nobody, everybody knows that these are draftees. But I think in in the you know after decades <laughs> and we now uh, sort of have this more concept of like the sort of volunteer soldiers um it is worth note kind of pointing out that like these are draftees these are not people who want to be there these are people who are forced to be there and i think that, that plays out very clearly in the dynamics um that you see yeah and and i mean you see you see all the sort of different divisions uh not not just you know the, the veterans and the newbies you you see sort of like class divisions between you know, officers who obviously, you know, went to officer school and came in, you know, like the the, the guy Wolf, who is basically supposed to be their commanding officer, who <laughs> is way in and over his head at one point calls in an airstrike on his own men because he's yep. just, you know, he's just battle shock and shit like that. Like he can't take it. And no one respects him. Like everyone respects Elias and Barnes. Elias and Barnes are the real leaders of the of the platoon. And and Wolf is just like a figurehead more than anything else. It's like, you know, you know, at one point, Wolf talks to Barnes like, "Like, listen, next next time, I give the orders to the men because I am the commander, and they should be hearing it from me." And Barnes is just like, "Sure, you piece of shit." He doesn't say it in those words, but he's like, "Sure, you piece of shit. What, what the fuck ever? Just, right, just yeah. get out of my way." <laughs> right. You know, and I'm trying to do something here. Leave me alone, right? Yeah, and I mean, you, you see that you see uh, a, a distinction of you know a lot of the. Uh, not not only just the poor, but uh, the minorities and the poor and all of them are sort of grouped together. A lot of them stick together. A lot of them are jumping into their little makeshift opium den, uh, playing all the good music. You know, like they're having a killer party. Like I'd like to go to it if it <laughs> yeah. wasn't for the fact that the next it's in the middle of a war. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The next day I'm going to walk out into like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit weather and have bugs eating every inch of my body and being shot at by Viet Cong. Yeah, no, I'd I'd, I'd be really in for that party because they're playing all the Motown tunes and shit while the, the boring, uh, more, more <laughs> they're playing Oki from Muskogee or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is like this very clear, you know, like dividing line here is like, uh, you know, we're, we're smoking weed and, uh, drinking and having a great, like relaxing time in this like chill environment. You literally listen to like Jeff- Jefferson airplane and shit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on the other side, it's like Oki from Muskogee. And they're just like these guys and they're in there like, you know, they're, they're practically in like the, the, like the, the tight, uh, you know, like button down shirts. And I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it is very, very clear. The, not just the class distinction, but the sort of like um, political uh, distinction there, this sort of like old reactionary types who, you know, are the sort of the parody of the people who are in like the green berets and that sort of thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, just just to finish up my sort of general thoughts here, I think Stone brings all these things together really well. I, what we'll get into, like, I think he kind of falls short in a couple places. Like, there, I think there's a couple, like, moments of Hollywood bullshit and stuff like that that, you know, you got to do to kind of sell a movie. But um, for the most part, like, this movie made me feel really uncomfortable. Uh, it 
frankly disgusted me at times, but it was because, you know, he was like showing visceral real shit that should disgust a normal human being. <laughs> and so, yeah, I know I, I quite enjoyed my first watch through on this. So, yeah. Awesome. Kind of one of the central things that I kind of have an issue with here. And uh, this uh, doesn't kill the movie, but it does. It did kind of like mar me on, on sort of this rewatch. I first saw this in my like mid twenties, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, just sort of accepted sort of, sort of some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the choices made by our lead actor here, Charlie Sheen. <laughs> and some of the, um, but rewatching it, it's kind of like, wow, I definitely get why you were cast because he was kind of an up-and-coming you know, actor. He, he has his fresh face. He sort of looks a little bit like Oliver Stone did when he was in his 20s. And so you can sort of see like why this guy was, was cast here. Apparently, um, um, apparently I'll, I'll just cut in there for a sec. Apparently it was originally supposed to be Emilio Estevez. And... But that was back when they were shopping it around, I guess. He was attached to the script. And then when they finally got to the point where they could make it, uh, like Charlie Sheen, I guess he 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 tried for it and was rejected. But by the time they finally got around to being actually able to make it, Emilio Estevez had other... Uh, it was either Emilio Estevez or Christian Slater. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but they, they already had other commitments. So Charlie Sheen got it. So... Awesome. Well, uh, <laughs> um, he's not good. Uh, no, he's not. Uh, he's he's not good. Um, and the decision to include bits of his like diary in terms of like letters to grandma uh, is. I get like it's 1986 and you're making this kind of big picture and you're trying to like, we just have different like levels of tolerance for that sort of thing today. And I sort of get this as sort of an idea of like, we're almost doing a parody of a world war two movie or like a civil war. movie. We're doing like this sort of, you know, Oh, the letters to grandma, the letters home. And like, you know, you get the, like the big piece of stationery where you see the hand writing over it, like in a movie from like 19. Well, I mean, and he's, you know? he's a guy who's in that mindset too, because it's mentioned that, both his father and grandfather fought in World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. so which was I common. Mean, I mean, there was this idea that, like, oh, this is my war, and this is my, this is this is I'm I'm obligated to do this because it's in my family, and we do have this tradition of military families, and and, and I'm sure he's I'm sure he saw all the fucking John Wayne movies and all that shit, right? So, yeah, sure, I mean, absolutely. So, so this is a character that he's a straight laced conservative boy from the suburbs or whatever, you know, most likely. And this is just what he thinks. This is how you do it. You know, you, you write your letter home to your gal. If you don't have your gal, maybe your mother. And if your mother's dead or doesn't care about you, maybe your grandmother, whatever. Because you don't really get that deep into his family situation. You really, but, don't, get, you really don't get a lot of background. He, did, he does kind of exist as a bit of an audience surrogate. Or is it well, kind yeah, of like he's, a generic he's a, everyman? You he's know, supposed to be of. a cipher. And, and, he, and he's fine when he's not trying to act. He's yeah. fine as a cipher then, but when he tries to act, that's when it's like, okay, you need to calm down a little bit. Like, no, someone needs to shoot you right now. Like that. <laughs> I'm also like reminded that like a lot of like in modern, more modern productions, you know, they'll take they'll take the actors and like put them through six weeks of boot camp and kind of make them kind of mm-hmm. you know give them like the physicality of what it is. And you know, Charlie Sheen does sort of act like a 
like a kid who, you know, is, is playing army just a little bit. Um, he's not terrible here, but he's not very good. And uh, it yep. is sort of something that mars the mars the kind of like experience of watching the film from a, in almost every scene. He's just kind of like, okay, he's kind of just there. But uh, I think the stuff around him is, is, is as you say, is, is, is really good. I like almost all the other performances here. Um, yep. One of, one of my favorites, you know, is, John C. McGinley, who um, you know goes on to uh, be a cameo star in almost every one of uh, Oliver Stone's films. I don't think he's been in absolutely every film, but he he is a he is a uh, he is a stalwart uh, Stone guy um, long before he was ever on Scrubs. And uh, so it's always <laughs> fun to uh, to see him in this. And this is one of the bigger roles he ever got in the Stone picture because you know, normally he's just kind of like in Nixon, he's literally like a guy applying for a job in an info martial art. Mm. And like a he's just like literally in the opening sequence he's like uh you know this this guy in a training video or whatever um so uh it's uh you know i have a fondness for him and he's mm-hmm. very good here he he really kind of lives in that role yep. it's not a very big role but he's but he's quite good also i think Beringer and defoe uh, and this is something mm-hmm. we haven't really kind of touched on yet and, and i'd like to kind of move into this a little bit that you get this kind of almost this like metaphorical metaphysical war war right or kind of the soul of this platoon between these two because you have this ineffectual lieutenant who isn't who is nominally in charge but knows nothing about what the fuck is going on at any given mm-hmm. time um you end up with this sort of this, this kind of dipole and you get this kind of behringer represents this more kind of old-fashioned you know kind of law and order right wing <laughs> you yeah. know like clean cut kind of thing and then defoe uh, represents the sort of the new, like kind of this more disaffected, you know, we're here, we're, you know, socially conscious, but, uh, you know, still kind of part of the same machine and kind of unable or unwilling to kind of get out of it more kind of like the hippie, if you, you know, get, get the drift here. Yeah. And, uh, there is this very, you know, the, the script is, I can, I can only imagine, I, I'd love to read the original version that, that Stone wrote in the sixties. Cause I really, I'm really curious, like how much, of this element was in the film to begin with, because it does like sort of it presents as like, we're going to tell the story that's kind of about this guy who's kind of a blank slate, who's kind of an empty vessel going through this just very, you know, on the ground, realistic uh, approach to like kind of what it was like to actually be there in the war. But then you also get this kind of big metaphorical device kind of like shoved on top of that. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if this is something that he kind of developed over the years and kind of like wanted to sort of like talk about this, like fractally talk about the sort of the political realities as we get kind of further away from the kind of immediate experience of the thing. I wonder how hard he, uh, like in early drafts of the script, I wonder how hard he went in on the like more like counterculture hippie-ish aspects of Elias. I wonder if he was Donald Sutherland and Kelly's heroes is like the, 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 <laughs> the hippie tanker or whatever the fuck he was in that movie. But no, um, I just wonder where they get their weed. Honestly, I sort of listen. They're like, how do these guys get, how are these guys getting weed? And, and uh, like, I, I know that people had it. I wasn't, I, I'm just, I got curious about the economics and the supply line. Like there was they, uh you know, yeah, that would be good to like get into. I, I know there's movies that do it because there was a lot of drug trafficking going on at that yeah, yeah. point. And but, I mean, a lot of it was like heroin and shit. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that happens in Afghanistan cause they grow poppies. And, you know? Well, they did, they did in Vietnam too. Like that was a big spot for that. Uh, mm-hmm. At least back then the character of Raj, not necessarily distinct that you can remember him, but um, yeah. you, you like you do. He's one of the black guys. 
Yeah. <laughs> there is, I'm, I'm just going to, there's another thing here in that it was a little bit uncomfortable seeing some of the way that race played in this movie. Like there was a little bit of a, like, you know, jive talking, you know, African-American mm-hmm. stereotype kind of going on. And not, I don't want to like stone is obviously a white American filmmaker of, of some privilege. And he is like trying to like kind of represent the experiences here. But, um, Boy, some of it seemed slightly culturally insensitive <laughs> from a twenty twenty perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. It just pushes us a little bit into that, like not quite black exploitation, which would actually be like a better word in some ways. It's the like liberal, like kind of. Oh yeah, it was, it was just. I can't even think of like a particular example. Just some of the stuff, and it just definitely made me feel uncomfortable uh, with regards uh. to race. But yeah, the character of Raj, who he sort of talks more like spiritual and shit like that whenever oh, he has yeah, like, a yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you you, you, you kind of see why, because at one point he's briefly seen like snatching heroin out of like the out of the uh, uniform of a dead VC soldier. So right, it's like, right. so like you, you see the drug trade and I mean, they got the fucking pipe that is obviously it's, it's, it's fucking uh, a heroin pipe. It's not it's not for fucking uh, pot. Um when when uh, Charlie Sheen is brought into the uh, into their little uh, their little party house or whatever, right? That pipe, at least I read that as being heroin and not. I'll I'll have to rewatch it. I wasn't really kind of watching for um, in that much detail, but um, I'm I'm sure you're right that like there's at least an implication. And Stone is very um, again in everything that he's kind of said. It's like you know, yeah, we can sort of portray <laughs> a smoking weed, and you know, there is you know, but it's very clear that there were like harder drugs that were available. And uh, I think Stone has always been kind of uh, we choose not to talk about that in terms of like whether he actually used them at the time. You know, I'm sure he did, and I I'm mean, sure he did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I mean, you're gonna die tomorrow. I mean, you know, you even see like a brief line from uh, Matt Dillon's character when they're partying in their shitty party house drinking Budweiser's and talking bullshit. Um, <laughs> Budweiser and Jack Daniels and like <laughs> mm. John Philip Sousa, basically. That's what that party is. Yeah. And fucking, he has like this offhand line about, you're talking about all oh, those fucking newbies over there smoking their drugs and stuff, bunch of potheads and all that shit. You know, the, the Vietnamese, they, they put chemicals in it anyway and, and, and try to put it on us to make us stop fighting and you know like it's like even he's got a conspiracy theory thing going on a little bit kind of speaks to the some right-wing elements today with yeah, <laughs> some conspiracy it's theories madness. it's reefer madness and it's like mm-hmm. the, that whole like alex jones uh, you know level bullshit i mean this it, it wasn't born on the internet in the 90s like it's, it's yeah a lot of this especially if you start looking through like racist literature from the 60s and you look at like kind of john birch society materials from the 60s it's like it's the same shit they've been they've been literally mm-hmm. pushing the same bullshit for 70 years at this point you know? yeah like, um, the focus changes but the you know the the swirling mass of bullshit remains the same yeah one of my favorite matt Dillon roles too because he's just a psychopath in this like just a clear-cut psychopath he's almost as dangerous as behringer is right um, but he, but he's more of the. Uh... It's Kevin Dillon. Oh, is it Kevin Dillon? Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, Kevin Dillon. Oh, yeah, yeah, duh. Yeah, actually, that's that's right. I, I just wrote down Matt Dillon in my notes for. So I, I, I was, I, I have the Wikipedia page open, so I can just kind of glance at it because I always forget characters' names. And, yeah, so. but yeah, no, no, and um, it makes more sense for me to say this is one of my favorite Kevin Dillon roles because there's not a lot of those out there that are all that great. <laughs> 
but yeah, no, he he's. But if it were Matt Dillon, it would still be one of the better Matt Dillon performances. That Kevin Dillon made the greatest Matt Dillon performance. That's ultimately what you were trying there, to say. There, yeah, sure, that's what I was going for. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but no, um, he's kind of like the little uh, yapping dog that you know is like the, the the cheerleader for the big bully dog in in Barnes. Mm-hmm. He's Barnes is the big clear cut fucking Southern psychopath with the scarred up fucking face and shit. Great makeup job, by the way, that they did on him for that. Like oh, I, I you, like, you, you, you could be convinced that like, Oh no, that's just, you know, <laughs> he, he, he is that way. The ever living shit out of <laughs> Tom Berenger. Yeah. <laughs> that's how they did that. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's a, a lot of the makeup kind of holds up, holds it really well. I mean, there's some stuff that's like kind of Fangoria level involving, you know, like a bomb that goes off and, uh, Oh, the, the, the two, that scene where the two guys, they get into the little, uh, the little VC, like foxhole bunker or whatever. And they find the, uh, they find the box with all the like maps and shit. That's Mm -hmm. a trap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that blows up. And then that guy comes walking out with like, out his arms and shit. And just goes like, Oh my God, (laughs) I was not expecting (laughs) that. That was, that was almost like Romero worthy, you know, like that was, that was a very, you know, kind of dark and, and, you know, it's, it's funny that like sort of, I think that there is this kind of like eightiesification, you know, at least for me, I kind of look at stuff mm-hmm. from this era and it kind of all looks the same and you sort of expect it to sort of hew to certain um, guidelines in terms of, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just of an era. It's got a style of its own. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that I kind of lived through that and then, you know, now kind of looking back on this, I'm looking back at my own, you know, childhood and my younger years, but you know, you don't expect like that level of, of gore and that level of the sense of the macabre uh, mm-hmm. in, in this kind of film. Um, because this is supposed to be kind of the big serious Oscar baby kind of, you know, uh, I mean, at one best picture, it's it's clearly kind of one of the, the better films of that year. And I think, you know, kind of having that moment in the film, it it is like a shock to the system. It is like kind of a shock to to audiences. And I think there is a, quite a bit of willingness to kind of delve into the muck a little bit more mm-hmm. than we would necessarily expect. And that is part of the way that the film works is like to avoid the cliches of sort of the, like the smiling soldiers and the sort of we're all in this together sort of thing. And then even later films, I mean, if you look at something like Forrest Gump, I don't know if you've uh, rewatched Forrest Gump lately, and I certainly haven't, but the mm-hmm. Vietnam War sequences in that are not nearly as dark as this is they're not nearly as um muddy and, and and mired in this kind of like bullshit you know despite the fact that it's trying to make kind of a similar point and that is the vietnam war is, is pretty pointless um that is kind of like a more like zemeckis family friendly kind of vision of the vietnam war yeah I don't like that movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking we should do it just to uh, rip it to shreds. Um, I, was, I was a fan of it when I was 14 and saw it, but, uh, you know, like, um, or 15. But uh, some of us have, have grown away from our previous um, uh, experiences there. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I, 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 I would like to talk a little bit about the kind of the Berenger-Defoe dichotomy there and kind of how it plays into the plot, if, if that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is that, like, this is a film that's supposed to be sort of like the experiences of this guy who finds himself in the muck and just sort of like a almost documentary style kind of vision of that, right? Not really documentary style, but you know what I mean. It's supposed to be this kind of gritty lived in day by day. This is what it really was. Mm-hmm. And then you get this other version of it, which is this kind of 
you know, almost like Moby Dick-like kind of the white whale uh, of, of these kind of like this big metaphorical message. But there's a third thing kind of going on, and that is uh, war crimes. Yeah, <laughs> um, a lot of war crimes. A lot of war crimes. And um, I I think if, if you're listening to my voice right now, you have no doubt that I did not serve in the U.S. military. I didn't serve in it. That's right. I served in the Russian military. God damn no, it. Yeah. I, I didn't serve in the military. Uh, I <laughs> chose not to and had the opportunity not to. And, um, you know, but uh, what's interesting is I do know people who have served. I know quite a few people who have served. And I, um, you know, kind of uh, follow media from people like there's a podcast called What a Hell of a Way to Die, which is uh, or a hell, of a, way, a hell of a Way to Die, which is sort of like two socialists who are current or former military men in the United States Mm -hmm. who are kind of talking about kind of military issues through a far left lens. Um, And it's a really interesting thing. And one of the things that like you kind of just get from listening to them and kind of listening to people's experiences is like low grade war crimes happen all the time. Like it's just, it's, it's it's just a thing, you know, somebody gets shot who shouldn't have and kind of gets like brushed under the rug. So, you know, you get a little aggressive when you're questioning some, some guy in the desert, and you know you, he gets a rifle butt to the face. Like this shit happens yeah. constantly. That is not to uh, denigrate the people who are listening to this who may have served, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just kind of something that's that's just a reality and something that like people who have served, who will talk about it, will just yeah, of course it happens all the time and nobody fucking cares because ultimately that's not you know we the system doesn't care that this is happening. Mm-hmm. We have a set of rules that we're supposed to abide by and those get bent or broken all the fucking time. And so, you know, did Oliver Stone commit war crimes in Vietnam? Like probably, you know. At the very least yeah. an accessory. And, you know, well, yeah, did he he probably witnessed a whole lot of shit. Um the thing that happens in this film is basically the My Lai massacre happens <laughs> in this film, you know. Yeah. Um it does kind of end up being something that like it feels like you know, slightly. I mean, it's it's definitely making a point about sort of American complicity, and it's definitely making a point about like sort of like what the experience was, and it is kind of pushing that button um, to push it to like the high level that it gets to, and to kind of make it about that mm-hmm. um, does seem to be like uh, slightly overstated in the sense of uh, really what it's trying to do is sort of justify the plot in the second half of the film because the whole thing is like there's this dynamic between um Beringer and Defoe is sort of like these two poles and then uh Beringer basically um, Beringer commits the Mylai massacre by himself and like, yep. is with his helpers and then the question is is Defoe gonna like report him to the superiors and like that kind of ends up being the thing that Beringer ends up shooting Defoe um and then you know like it, it kind of drives the rest of the plot um in a very kind of like 80s movie <laughs> Like, uh, you know, lockstep plot pattern. And that's just sort of the scaffolding that the movie is made of. So I'm just wondering what you feel about, like, how that worked within the context of the film for you. It was actually my favorite part about the film, honestly. Like, I, I liked the metaphorical, like, battle between those two. Honestly, I felt like the movie kind of lost its way a little bit after... Yeah, Behringer after Defoe kills dies. The, yeah. yeah, after Defoe dies, it's kind of like, and now there's still three minutes of plot to, to go. <laughs> like you know, yeah, it does get a little, it does get a little muddy at the, in the last. That, and third, yeah. and I and I think that also just sort of speaks to like how Charlie Sheen j- or just isn't really up to the task of carrying the film. His character is the cipher that, and like, oh, he's conflicted now, and he's got to take up for Elias and shit. Like, yeah, I don't care too much about that. I care more about like actual justice for Elias and stuff like that. Like, Mm -hmm. 
and the movie doesn't doesn't really follow up on that. It, it becomes more of a revenge action movie with a lot of killing and there's some Rambo bullshit at the end with Charlie Sheen to make you maybe root for him and I'm just I don't believe any of that shit could happen <laughs> necessarily. I tuned out of this film slightly in that last 20 minutes it really does feel like the, the film peaks too early and then it really just kind of it's a bunch of like kind of running around and a bunch of like stuff in the jungle um i mean that last assault by the vc is it's a it's a great scene it's it's well put know. together oliver stone even shows up as like a unit commander or something yep. in a bunker and a suicide bomber sapper runs in and blows him to shit like you know that that that's fun but that's also part of the problem. It shouldn't be fun. And right. the movie sort of starts leaning in on that sort of, oh, we need a big action thing to finish this off. And like, no, you don't. Even just like um, Charlie Sheen maybe getting revenge and just focus on that and not necessarily a big battle would be fine. But yeah, no, I, it, it just sort of really does fall apart a bit at the end. Like not enough to like kill the movie for me or anything. Like I still love the film, but and, and the way Defoe dies, too, is just kind of, it's a little over the top. He's being because chased. They shoot him. Like yeah. Berenger shoots him. And it's like, it's a, he thinks, Berenger thinks that Defoe is dead. Right? Yeah. And so he goes out and it's like, he's gone. It's it's over. And then, like, you got to leave him behind because the Viet Cong are swarming this place. Of course, the faceless, nameless Viet Cong, who are the, the mm-hmm. ones, uh, you know, it's cowboys and Indians again, just, uh, you know, uh, you know. It's just it's a fundamental problem with the way to make the film because they're not humanized at all. Um, yeah, fundamental to the thing we can't really. It's not even a criticism necessarily. It's just, it is a thing. Um, but so then uh, they're getting up in their in their chopper and they're flying away and then they find Defoe running through the far running through the jungle from the Viet Cong and like it's this very kind of slow motion like almost like Spielbergian or like Chariots of Fire. I, I, ex- I expected like uh, Chariots of Fire or maybe even like something as stupid as uh, CCR run through the jungle or whatever the fuck or um, to quote one of my favorite uh, podcasts that makes a joke about this put me in coach <laughs> from John Fogarty you know it's like oh he's gonna make it and shit and like no he doesn't no, make it and then and it's it's so it's just so over the top and unbelievable and it, like it kind of kind of kills the reality of the film for me uh, to a certain degree right because even though i know there's this metaphorical thing going on like i still i feel like it's so well balanced with just like the character work and mm-hmm. and all that throughout most of the film so i have no problem with it like it, it's 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 well balanced enough that you can believe in all of it and then once it does this it kind of jumps the shark a little bit for me and just i agree with all that i think i think it is kind of it is kind of overdone but it is like it's overdone in the way that like an 80s uh you know oscar movie was gonna be like it's just sort of mm-hmm. that's just the stuff you know and to a certain degree we're kind of like talking about like um sort of our, our tolerance for this kind of schmaltz and our tolerance for this yeah. you know what was what was completely stylistic for the time of course you would you know now we've um now we underplay those moments like you know i mean mm-hmm. a you know, you would you wouldn't have you, you would almost literally just kind of see like you know uh, somebody would shoot him and he would just fall down and there would be no music in that. And the point is that, that the fact that it's understated becomes the um, way that it sort of justifies its dramatic heft. Uh, going back to your thing about sort of like it, uh, you know, we're doing like an exciting uh, action sequence at the end of the film. We're doing kind of exciting war movie stuff. I mean, I think it was Truffaut who said, you know, you can never actually make a real war movie because like movies by their definition have to be sort of entertaining and exciting. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, there's no, 
way to like kind of make war look boring and horrible in in its application. And I think that that's uh, I think that there's some truth to that. And I think that filmmakers have managed to sort of like sell that in ways um, uh, later on. So uh, you know, but but I think you're right that that is like if this this is a box office success, this one best picture, this got like critical acclaim um, from everybody. And um, the way you do that is you kind of give you kind of give a big action sequence at the end, you know, yeah. to, uh, make it a thing. Um, and it does and it does kind of feel like it's kind of thinking about that. It does feel like it's both trying to criticize the war it is trying to sort of be this thing that is like you know exploring this idea that vietnam was bad but at the same time and it's sort of like fundamental construction it's meant to kind of appeal to people who want to go and watch a war movie and like i feel like we don't do this as much now like we've kind of moved into more of like fantasy you know like sci-fi movies and, and Marvel movies and that sort of thing for our sort of action stuff they nerf war is what they do yeah, for quite a few years, like, you know, war movies were like our big action movies. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's just the reality of it. And uh, so this is both trying to kind of like satisfy that audience and it's trying to kind of like be something that's more sober and serious. And um, yeah, it is It is kind of a big mix of ideas. And I think it mostly works, but I think there are kind of like glaring holes in it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's two hours and, you know, like only like 20 minutes of it is objectively not as good as the other, you know, hour and a half or whatever. So it's like, yeah, I can, I can live with it, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, I think this might edge into my best of list yeah. this year. So I, uh, I mean, I've seen it before, so it doesn't count for me. Um, mm-hmm. It would be hard. I, I found myself and I, and I like, I do like this film a lot. I find myself not really loving this. Like I, I found myself not, really responding to it and i like a visceral way that usually the stuff that gets, ends up in my top 10 is stuff that like really kind of involves me that kind of gives me stuff to think about and maybe it's sort of my just familiarity with the material mm-hmm. kind of the larger kind of like uh you know conversation around this that sort of makes me think like i think this would have been really thrilling and it's exhilarating in this kind of political way in this uh, you know ideological way and even in a cinematic way in 1986 um you know, plenty of people put this on their like best of the year list at that time, you know? Yeah. And I, and you know, if I had been a person making a uh, best of movie lists uh, as a, as a, as a, a small child <laughs> in like, <laughs> single digit grades in, in the, in the mid eighties, uh, I may very well have, have done so myself, but um, you'd put this up there, right. With like uh, the running man and total recall and <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, or something like that, you know? Yeah. You know, I get that from '86, but uh, you know, yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, no, um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, I think this is. Uh, I definitely think people should see this. I really, I feel like that one of the things that I'm kind of realizing as I've kind of entered my 40s, and you know, kind of thinking about like sort of like the way that people view um, society and the way that people view um, cinema, etc., is that I think the Vietnam War and I think that like this sort of like this whole era has almost been lost. There's this kind of focus on, um, you know, people sort of are aware of World War II and kind of World War II era stuff. And people are aware of stuff that's kind of later on and certainly got kind of the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, people, people have this kind of cultural memory for it. But I think Vietnam is like this, this huge thing that is like hugely important to our history and to um, how we are viewed in the world has kind of been memory hold. We really are not kind of talking about like what Vietnam Meant anymore, and I feel like that's because 
there's this sense that like kind of people are closing that chapter a little bit, but I think that's a mistake. I think that, you know, going, you know, all this shit that we said about Iraq and all the shit that's going on in Afghanistan, we did it two decades earlier in Vietnam. <laughs> you know? Of course, part of it is just America lost so badly in that war that, right. I mean, that's kind of a sore spot to talk about anyway, but like that was the first like really big televised war that was not, you know, almost exclusively all propaganda and movie theaters or whatever, like in World War Two or whatever, right? You and ever since then, you've gotten every war has been fucking televised now, and it's all mass media and it's all well. And it was based on the sort of TV footage that was coming out in the sixties mm-hmm. and the sixties and seventies of like the body bags coming home, and in particular in like sixty eight, sixty nine. This is kind of when the like the peak, like high levels of this like thing. Oh, there's a lot of body bag footage in this film too. There's you yeah. know there's at the beginning and then there's where the helicopters coming to pick up the bodies and it blows the fucking bags off of them because they were just covering them up and then they have to they have to take the dead bodies off yeah yeah no no there's tons and tons of that but like all that body bag footage of just like people being thrown into choppers and people being you know like all that stuff that was airing on the nightly news Mm-hmm. Um, so your main source of information at that time sorry you know, like, you know like at the time you didn't have like the internet you couldn't just check your twitter feed um <laughs> sorry i would definitely yeah. be insulting there um uh, but uh yeah no it's 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 clear that that's sort of a, a phenomenon that's happening um but uh like the bush administration in the first days of the iraq war and the afghanistan war like specified like no cameras that we don't allow you to take photos of caskets being loaded we don't allow you to take photos of of people coming home in body bags specifically to avoid that uh, mass media reaction like if it's not photographed and it's, there's not tape of it somewhere that can be shown on television it's not happening and i think that the, that kind of the way that the media um, you know, this is kind of like the, the way the visual media kind of kind of treated uh, Vietnam um, reflects uh, some of the way some of the decisions that are made in this film, in particular with the, the focus on body bags. I hadn't even noticed that until you mentioned this. Like, right there is a ton of like yeah body bag stuff here, and I think that that's specific to like that moment of like you know they're they're thinking about it heavily. Honestly, I feel like there's a you know it's like somebody's going to make a coronavirus movie in a few years probably uh, i'll live through this and um uh, you know you know body bags and mobile freezers is going to be you know like the central image of that or something you know? yeah we're already seeing that sort of thing i think one of the the central things that every american government since vietnam has learned is that if you don't have the population you know sort of patriotically behind you uh in a war like you know cheering it on like to the degree that you did in like world war ii then it's really bad for your fucking war back home. And so like you, you got people seeing dead bodies on TV. Uh, you're going to start having people turn against your, your war effort. And, you know, and of course they have all their oil interests and all that other bullshit fucking wrapped up in that. So, I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's not good for the profit margin to have the, the American populace uh, against your war. And if you're showing them all the, the really dirty shit in your war, they're probably not going to like it. So, which is you know kind of fundamentally the problem. And I mean, you know, I think now and and um, I know we're I know we're trying to wrap up and we're not really talking about the film anymore. Mm-hmm. I feel like now, like the the thing that we've just sort of accepted. I mean, the United States has been at war since two thousand. You know, unofficially since uh, two thousand one, mm-hmm. like a month after nine um, eleven, we sent 
you know, we started sending special forces into Afghanistan. We started sending soldiers into Afghanistan. They're still there. Like Iraq is over, but we're still like kind of, you know, monitoring the region. We have this kind of global reach. The United States is in wars and conflicts. There are, there are soldiers all over the place. We're droning people. We're doing all this stuff. It's uh, just cost of doing business. It's just part of our kind of background noise. We don't even think about the fact that. Yeah. Uh, we have this quote unquote all volunteer army, which are obviously, you know, they're signing up for college, <laughs> you know, they're signing up for, for benefits. These are- a lot of them still aren't really volunteers. Like it, it's not explicitly a draft, but it kind of still is a draft yeah, for a lot of these people. Like people who can't afford to, yeah. you know, who can't, who can't not do it or, or want something from it. And, um, you know, a lot of people who got in for, personally noble reasons who thought mm-hmm. they were doing something right and then kind of realized, oh no, this is fucked up. Um, that happens all the time. Yeah. But I think the fact that we just have this sort of like constant thing, you know, it's like, well, there's always, um, you know, violence in the Middle East, quote unquote. There's always a bombing happening. There's always, you know, people getting killed. It's not news because it's just standard now. And I think yeah. that's, you know, just something that's, that's just a part of our, our life, you know? Yeah. This had a budget of six million, and it made one hundred thirty-eight point five million alone in North America for totals. Uh, did really, really well. Massive hit. Yeah. yeah. Also, the fact that it was made for six million, even in even in um, eighty-six, that's that's a pretty shoe. It, it seem it looks a lot bigger than that. Like yeah. it really does. Apparently, it was really cheap. Well, and all these a lot of these actors who went on to be like really huge are uh, kind of newbies at this point. These are mm-hmm. young actors at this point, you know. So presumably not getting paid a ton, you know? there was no there was no like johnny depp walking in with like his 20 million dollar salary or whatever you know yeah. just, i don't yeah. think he even had anyone approaching that back in that day even the highest paid actors i think were kind of you know oh maybe they had like a couple million dollar salary at the most or something Jack nicholson like in 89's batman because he took like a big uh, like chunk of the back end of that like in order to agree to be in that and i remember this as like so somebody who was like following this stuff and like the Guinness Book of Records, like what's the biggest payday an actor ever took? And I think he got $60 million to be in the 1989 Batman. Jesus. And that was because he like kind of took like some payment ahead of time. It was like $5 million now and then some percentage of the, of the box office. Gross, not net. <laughs> and so um, that movie was so huge that he just raked in cash on that you know like and, and i mean he he literally never had to act again if he wanted didn't want to he did not and he chose to which is a interesting choice there but yeah now he's in his 80s and he's watching basketball games you know so yeah well you know if i was if i was his age and i had uh jack nicholson is a complicated character we should probably avoid talking to uh, <laughs> i would do if i were jack nicholson but uh you know uh, uh, so like the top paid actors. I mean, I remember like uh, Jim Carrey, like a decade later, was like kind of the first like twenty million dollar. Yeah, was getting, you know, and it wasn't a few years before that. It was like ten million was like the huge like thing. And so I can imagine, you know, like a few million bucks to be in a movie was kind of your top asking price. I think at this point, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Oliver Stone was apparently really rough and abrasive with his uh, treatment of the actors in this. Um, so like they put them through sort of a boot camp and and even when they were actually went into shooting um apparently stone was just like really going method on them and like kind of abusing them throughout the entire shoot to the point where they were all like on edge and hated him because he wanted to get that out of their performance i guess um 
Yeah, apparently they say some of his behavior sometimes bordered on psychotic from a combination of sleep deprivation, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the intensity of the shoot itself. The editor claimed that one day Stone yelled at him for taking away footage of a scene that hadn't even shot yet. Uh, (laughs) uh, Johnny Depp says... um, Oliver Stone also went through a heavy cocaine phase. Let's just... uh, (laughs) He did, yes. Uh... Johnny Depp recalled that during one particularly stressful scene, he was so intimidated by Stone's aggressive behavior that he came close to vomiting. And Stone still insisted on a second take, apparently, when they were doing that. So, yeah, there you go. This is interesting. Uh, the US- gets Vietnamese in this movie, by the way, which is interesting, you know, because he's like the translator. He's translator the guy. guy. So, you know, he's right at the center of the war crime in the in the movie. Yeah, he is. He's the, uh, the the babble fish for the war crime. In, in that, uh, yeah, this is an interesting one. I, I thought this stood out in the trivia. The U.S. Department of Defense declined to cooperate in the making of the film, so mm-hmm. military equipment was loaned from the armed forces of the Philippines to to do this. That's uh, this was. Uh, I mean, we've talked about this before. I think when we did Iron Eagle, we talked a little bit mm-hmm. about like how. The, um, the U.S. government, basically, uh, starting with Top Gun and working through to today, and we talked about this in our in our Marvel series uh, quite a bit. That the, the U.S. government essentially like loans, you know, like interest free loans to um, Hollywood uh, to uh, you know of equipment and material and sort of like expertise, um, and in uh, exchange they get uh, say on what uh, goes into the movie. Yeah. They get to say, like, oh no, this is too negative. It makes us look bad, so we don't. We're not going to put our stamp of approval on this. And you don't get uh, the money for this and so um almost every film made about war even ones which are quote-unquote anti-war um essentially play ball with the u.s government um, yeah the fact that overstone does not do that at this period which is that kind of the very beginning of this but the fact that he did not do that is probably the only way this film got made in the way that it is yeah uh apparently mickey rourke emilio like i said emilio estevez and kevin costner were all considered for the part of barnes at one point okay so that's probably where i read emilio estevez and i think it still was um christian slater for the lead though for uh, the taylor part emilio estevez in the tom Berenger role that does, <laughs> that's yeah that's you know like i am 23 years old i am emilio estevez <laughs> i'm just out of repo man buy me as a hardened soldier yeah, no. Uh, Keanu I Reeves. Was, I could definitely see him as one of the younger guys. I oh yeah, definitely. Him. Yeah, uh, he'd made a bit. He'd made a better Taylor, that's for sure. Um, Keanu Reeves turned down the role of Taylor because of the violence, apparently. So he was offered mm-hmm. it. Um, Which is also yeah. really early his career. Yeah, like uh, everybody got offered this. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and one last little bit of trivia here with this movie. Oliver Stone became the first Vietnam veteran to direct a major motion picture about the Vietnam War. He was already the first Vietnam veteran to win an Oscar for Midnight Express in 78 and became, with this film, the first Vietnam vet to win an Oscar for Best Director. As of 2016, he is the last veteran of any war to win an Oscar for Best Director other than Clint Eastwood, who served in the Army during the Korean War but never went to South Korea. Yeah, that's interesting. That is a... That's very telling that a trivia, isn't it? That says a lot about the Hollywood system, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It really <laughs> does. Uh, yeah, so what are we thinking of for the next episode? Uh, we can't record next week because I'm working next weekend unless we uh, do it earlier in the week. And I don't know if we'll have yeah, time. Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible for me to do anything except for Saturdays and Sundays. 
I'm. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to kind of give it to you, and if you had a, you had a suggestion, I mean, my thing would be, I had so much fun talking about this movie. I was, I'd be interested in doing Wall Street, which is the next film that Stone made with uh, Charlie Sheen. Uh, mm-hmm. If you didn't have anything else kind of in mind, but uh, if you mm-hmm. had, it was in a completely different direction. That's fine too. I hadn't really thought too much about it. I was just kind of like, yeah, I'd like to see, I'd see Wall Street again. I think that would be a fun one to talk about. But uh, if if you want to move elsewhere, that's fine too. So I was actually thinking we could go a little bit lighter and maybe do a uh, sex comedy. Oh yeah, sure. And, yeah, and I was thinking we should just uh, do Weird Science. <laughs> I could go for some John Hughes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Weird Science. That was that was a, a very important one for my. Uh, from my teenage years or you know, mm-hmm. uh, era. All right. So yeah, we'll do weird science. Um, the next time Daniel and I record, uh, there is going to be an intermission episode for next weekend though, for uh, you listeners already recorded it with Paul. We did uh, two slasher films. We did uh, superstition and the final terror. So uh, two uh, early eighties slasher films. Is that, is that an intermission episode or is that just an episode that I'm not on? <laughs> no, it's, 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 basically an intermission episode it's only about 40 minutes or something like that so okay that's fair that's fair. yeah I mean, you know whatever give it a number or don't that's your decision i don't really care yeah i, I was i was stressed for time but uh, paul was like i can record this week i'm off all week i was like okay well let's fit an episode in on uh, this day and we did so there we go cool but, yeah okay. so daniel where can people find you on the interwebs uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper, if you want to do that. Uh, I do another podcast called I Don't Speak German. It's uh, about Nazis and terrible people and the terrible things that they say uh, and believe because I've been listening to their podcast for years. And they get very mad at me when I explain all the things that they believe. Um, so if you want to listen to that, which is, I think, a worthwhile listen, um, mm-hmm. if you are not aware of me <laughs> other than this podcast and you've somehow avoided me saying this on this show for the last uh, 60 or 70 episodes, Please uh, go check it out. <laughs> they, they only listen to the episodes of this podcast that you were not on. So like the two <laughs> that you were not on. Yeah, they only listen to like six episodes or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this one, you know, like what are, I mentioned what Lee has to say about uh, Oliver Stone's platoon. This is, yeah, this is the content mm-hmm. I crave. No one ever said that. Yeah, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our Apple podcast, Facebook, YouTube links, uh, all that good stuff. Go to the Facebook group if you want to get in touch with us, give us suggestions, comments, criticisms, whatever the fuck, um, recipes for delicious sausages. I don't know. I mean... They're sourdough bread recipes. Give us sourdough bread recipes. We could use that right now. There you go. I'm up for that. You know, Or, you know, if you just want to, like, I don't know, uh, give us a, lot of, a bunch of those um, stupid-ass uh, hug emojis that are in Facebook right now. Uh, the <laughs> Social distancing. Social distancing. It's really, we've said this before, but it's really ironic that, like, you know, podcasting should be hitting a boon right now because people are at home and they mm-hmm. need entertainment. And like Lee and I would love to be able to just sit at home and do that, but we both have like essential jobs and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like I would totally do this like every couple of days, just kind of watch a movie and come on. Like if I was not still working in the midst of a pandemic, it would be, um, it would be fun, but I, I, not so much. I do enjoy going to the liquor store very often now with my extra money and like running into people I know and they're asking me, Oh, how you doing? You still working? I was like, fuck yeah, pal. I'm a pandemic hero. That's what I do now. I'm yeah. just, I'm like fucking Ash versus Evil Dead or whatever, you know? Like, uh, I just don't have a chainsaw in one of my arms. That's it. 
Well, not that we know of, anyway. No, it, it's it's in my crotch. I'll just leave it there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Great way to go out. Great way to go out. Yeah, yeah that just fell flat. Uh, so, yeah, uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Thank you, Daniel. And we'll be back when we're back. Goodbye. Cheers. listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>